You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So, pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Welcome to episode 10 of the Central Station Podcast. Guys, we made it to 10 episodes. Double digits. That's pretty exciting. Um, I hope you guys have enjoyed the first nine episodes so far and that you're going to like the 10th and all the ones that we've got coming your way. In today's episode, I'm talking to Dr. Gillian Kelly, who is a large animal vet and artist from New South Wales, far northern New South Wales. Um, I know what you're thinking, New South Wales, that's not really Central Station country, is it? And it isn't really. Um, Technically, we do have some people that have written for us that are located further south than Jill, but they're actually on cattle stations in the southern rangelands of WA. But you know what? We make the rules, so we let Jill in because she's pretty awesome. She knows cattle, she knows the outback life, and she writes some pretty good stories. So I hope you enjoy listening to our chat today. This episode is sponsored by Direct Drilling, a locally owned family drilling company based in Kununurra and servicing the Kimberley and Northern Territory. All drillers are nationally licensed with the Australian Drilling Industry Association, ensuring best practice, the protection of water resources and guaranteeing the life of the bore. Find out more at directdrill.com.au. Welcome to the podcast, Jill. Nice to be here, Steph. Or should I call you Dr. Kelly? No, Jill's fine, thanks. Jill, okay, Dr. Gillian Kelly. I only pull out the doctor when I have to catch a plane. Oh, really? (laughs) Makes me feel really important. Have you ever had anybody like on a plane go, oh my God, we need help. Is there a doctor on board? And they've looked at the manifest and been like, seat 12E, we've got Dr. Kelly. No, that's never happened to me. But I have been at a camp draft where there was an awful accident and the the volunteer first aid men went to water and they called for anybody with any medical experience and two vets and an occupational therapist ended up helping. Yeah, that was a bit wild. (laughs) So for people who aren't familiar with Dr. Gillian Kelly or those people who haven't yet read your blogs, which if you haven't, pause this podcast, head to our website, find Dr. Gillian Kelly and read her stories because they're pretty good. Um, Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Well, I'm Jill Kelly. I am a vet from Central West New South Wales, a little town called Canamble. Um, I'm probably one of, or maybe the most Southern blogger for Central Stations. Yeah, um, you are. Yeah, so I feel like a bit of an imposter with all the Northerners and the big no, stations. <laughs> normally we don't let people in. Like we've got, in WA there are some Southern people, but it's still the rangelands and then in Territory and Queensland. But I think you're actually our only New South Wales blogger. And I remember thinking, oh, should we? Like, oh, I don't know, it's not really. And then I was so desperate for anything. <laughs> I Thanks. said yes. Thanks, but then Steph. I, but then I got your blogs and I was like, oh, no, that was a good choice. I really appreciate it. No, it worked out well. It worked out well. <laughs> should we continue? Yeah, we should. <laughs> Sorry, continue on. Um, where, where is Canamble? Because, like, I – so New South Wales, I heard you mention earlier today Tamworth. I more or less know where that is. So we're about three and a half hours west of Tamworth and we're about uh, an hour and three quarters north of Dubbo. Okay. 
Dubbo is near Gilganja. Is that a town like Gilganja? Yeah, so we're an hour north of Gilganja. Okay, cool. Yeah, if you, if there, if you that's head... my one reference point. And there's a big zoo in Dubbo, right? There is, yeah, Taronga West Plain Zoo is in Dubbo. So Dubbo is pretty much our centre. That's where we do our big shops and our, you know, all those things that you can't get in a little town. Canaveral's got about 2,500 people in it, and um, it's a great little town. We've got a yeah. huge community spirit, despite the drought. And. Um, Oh, that's awesome. It's the center of my universe. It's a really good place to live. All right. So I'm going to talk to you about Canaveral in a little bit, but let's just we'll just go through this in kind of a chronological timeline. Um, let's just start off at the beginning of your story. Tell me about it. Yeah, well, I grew up in Canaveral. So it's my hometown. I was born in Canaveral Hospital. Uh, so I never had any real intentions of ending up in Canaveral or going home. It just sort of happened organically. But, yeah, I went to school in Canamble until year nine and then I got the opportunity, I got a scholarship to go to boarding school. So I went to boarding school for four years. Is that in, in Sydney? No, in Bathurst, which is Victoria. another... No, it's in New South Wales. It's oh, a, really? It's a big regional centre about four hours uh, southeast of Canamble. Uh, so sort of east is of there Orange. Another, is there two Bathursts? No. Is that where that big car race is, though? Yep. Yeah. Oh, God, that's... I have no idea what that is. I always thought that was in Victoria. No, that's Awkward. in, that, yeah, that's in <laughs> New South Wales. St. Bathurst, which is a very cold place. It snows there in winter, so that was fun. Um, so I did that for four years, and then um, I, had a, I had a gap year. I, I tried to get into vet, and I couldn't get in. I didn't get, quite get the marks, um, which is a story in, into itself. So which, I, tell me the story. You know, I was. You knew I was going to ask that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I well, growing up, I think a lot of people who want to be vets have wanted to be vets since day dot, and um, it was what they lived and breathed for. It really wasn't with me. I was like, I grew up in a little town. We always had horses and things, but I lived in town growing up, and um, we uh, at boarding school. Well, when I was really little, I wanted to be hairdresser like Aunty Wendy because mm-hmm. I like pretty things and all that sort of girly stuff so as I sit here looking at you with pearl earrings and a pearl bracelet and a fabulous bandana oh yes or neck scarf sorry the, made by the fabulous Steph Coon yeah, yeah it's an original Lots uh, of pretty things. so I yeah and then as I got into year nine and ten I wanted to be a journalist and um and yet you were so hesitant to come on the podcast. I'm still pretty hesitant about the podcast, Steph. <laughs> we'll see how this much. could have been your career path. Though, <laughs> we'll right? see how much editing goes on. Uh, so I, so I thought, well, you can't be a journalist if you don't know how to type. So when I went to boarding school, I um, joined computer studies. That was one of my electives in year nine and ten. And then I got into computer studies and thought, oh my lord, the boys are heaps cuter in ag. Um, so I switched to ag. And never looked back. I loved ag. I loved showing cattle. I loved all of that sort of stuff. And um, as year 12 approached and career choices became a thing, I just wanted to go and work on a place. I just wanted to be Jillaroo and um, work with the stock. And um, I was really, I was actually quite academic, surprisingly. And um, I was top of the three unit maths class at school. And the te- the teacher would say to me, "What do you want to be?" And I'd say, "Jillaroo." And he'd say, "Oh, mate, you you can't. You've got to go. You've got to go to uni. You know, you're really academic." And so I um, thought, "Oh, well, the next best thing to being a Jillaroo is to be a vet. You still get to work with stock, and you get to be out on farm every day." 
So I thought, oh, yeah, I'll be a vet. So I applied to be a vet and I didn't get the marks. I didn't get in. And um, I think I was 1.2 marks below the cutoff. So I went and begged to get into Sydney Uni. It's like, who do you beg? I had a meeting with the sub-dean of academic admissions, which for a kid from Canamble, I'd not been to Sydney. I didn't know how to get to Sydney. I didn't know how to catch a train. I didn't know how yeah. to catch, I didn't know how to drive in Sydney. I went down with mum and dad who were equally as scared of Sydney. And um, anyway, we went and had this meeting and um, I begged and said, you know, I go to Pony Club and I go to, you know, I'm involved in rural things. We've always had animals, all that sort of stuff. And he 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 blatantly said to me, look, there's 30 people. I know you're only 1.2 marks below the cutoff, but you're 30 people. There's 30 people above you who all got better marks who all also want to be a vet. My advice to you is go home and find another career path. So Brutal. I went to brutal but honest as well there was no illusions and at that time um the only um the only places that you could do vet um were there was only like four unis in in australia where you could do vet so wagga and townsville and roseworthy in south australia hadn't opened up so it was all very academic based and um it was highly coveted to get in to be a vet so yeah i went home and i was going to be an accountant god and any, <laughs> oh, anybody who knows me knows I don't do figures, I don't do spreadsheets, I don't do sitting in an office, I don't have a long attention span. Yeah. So that would have been a disaster for both me and the um, accounting profession had that happened. So, um, yeah, at the very I, – I had enrolled in accounting at CSU in Bathurst and I'd got a place to live and I'd got a scholarship and I was set to be an accountant. And then at the very 11th hour, Sydney Uni rang and said, look, we've reconsidered. Would you like a spot? So I gratefully accepted, said I couldn't afford to live in Sydney um, that year, but could I defer? And they said, oh, that would really suit us well. Um, so that sounds great. We'll see you next year. So I had a gap year and was a checkout chick and a barmaid in Canamble for a year. And then I went to uni in Sydney and studied vet science. So what was that gap year like? Um, that gap year was an eye-opening experience. I think my family were quite concerned that it might, I might get distracted and never go to uni. I might just end up working. Enjoy the money and just kind of want to stick with it. Yeah. But actually it had the opposite effect. I realized pretty soon that I didn't want to be a checkout chief and a barmaid forever. And I was pretty bored and it was yeah pretty ordinary, but it taught me a lot about customer service and talking to people and how the world works. And it allowed me to grow up a bit before I went to Sydney. So yeah, it was. A, I thought it was. It was a very um, useful thing to me. And then the big move from Canamble down to Sydney. What was that like? Oh, it was crazy. I was like a fish out of water. I didn't know how to catch a train or a bus or anything remotely about living in Sydney. It was crazy. So what um, did you, like? What did you do? Did you live on campus? Yeah, or luckily find... lived on campus. Yeah. And um, yeah, I went to uni. Vet science at Sydney Uni is pretty full on. It was forty hours a week study, so it was very intensive uni lectures you didn't have a lot of free time um, managed to make some friends and have a pretty good time while I was down there but um, it was a very um, small animal based course and a very um, yeah most of my the, most of the people that they graduated at that, at that time were very small animal based vets so yeah so then uh, how long was uni for so five years in total the last year was fully prac work um, four years solid at uni. Okay, so if it was mainly small animal based, how did you get some large animal experience? 
well, the the last six months of it was out at Camden at the uni farm, but I suppose my heart always lay in the bush, especially after living in Sydney. I knew that I always wanted to get out of Sydney um, and work with production animals. So cattle were particularly my focus when I was at uni. I thought, yeah, cattle, mixed practice, but particularly with a beef cattle focus was going to be where I ended up. And that certainly was where I went when I graduated. So you got some experience out at the uni farm and then... Like, did you have very much experience when you finished uni with large animals? Like, was it hard trying to get that first job? Yeah. Well, it wasn't necessarily hard to get the first job. I was pretty lucky that I landed the job I did. It was an excellent job and it just suited me down to the ground. But I was pretty green. And, um, yeah, I was pretty nervous too, you know. It's all well and good, I think, to have some stock experience when you're a teenager. But to work in lots of different sets of cattle yards and to turn up as the vet fresh out of uni and be looked upon as someone who is going to do a job and earn their money is really daunting. So I definitely learnt more in the first two years out of uni than I did at five years at uni, I think. And where was your first job? So my first job was at Roma, which is a town in southwest Queensland for the Roma Vet Clinic. And so is that as far north as you've worked? Yeah, well, I did two years in Roma. Then I went overseas, then I, um, and I worked in England and had a I'm, I'm just thinking we can kind of Roma if somebody from Roma wanted to write for us probably still a bit southern but it's more yeah, northern snobble I know <laughs> I did locums in lots of other places yeah yeah that's right you count it's all right you're in the yeah. family now you can stay so tell me about the job at Roma yeah so the job I worked for the Roma vet clinic and it was a great job I was working with a really great boss um, and his wife and and it was a really family business and I had lots of other great young vets that were working alongside me and um, it was a very um, mixed practice with remote clinics and um, it was very beef cattle orientated with station horses and you know working dogs and things like that so it was just what just what I wanted it was perfect and so what were the main things that you were doing? Like was it feedlot cattle or pastoral cattle or farm Main, cattle? Yeah, mainly pastoral cattle, lots of preg testing, lots of bull testing, lots of work at the Roma sale yards, preg testing, pre-sale and things. And then um, we do a branch clinic twice a week at Mitchell, which is a little town west of Roma. Mm-hmm. And then we do um, often remote work from there. So you'd often go and sleep on places and you might preg test or you might do horse's teeth or you might like do a full few days work and so you'd camp out a bit now I just want to take me back to what you're saying about Roma sale yards and preg testing there for people that may not be familiar or have an understanding what is the purpose of preg testing when the cattle are already at a sale yard well it just depends on cattle markets and things like that so sometimes there might be a premium for cattle who are um, pregnant or not pregnant or heavily pregnant or you know it just depends on the time of year and and the seasonal conditions as to what's of value and so they might get the vet in to preg test them and if they're an Australian cattle vet who is um, certified to put on pregnancy testing tags they can um, tag them which which um, certifies that that animal is more than four months pregnant or less than four months pregnant or certifiably empty and that way they can be sold based on their pregnancy categorization okay and would people get their cattle pregnancy tested at the sale yards because maybe they didn't have enough cattle to make it worthwhile to call a vet out to their farm or didn't have access to a vet out in their farm and it was just kind of like a we'll all get together and kind of go in on it it was just a service that the sale yard provided is that how that worked 
Well, not necessarily that the sale provider, but that but that their agent suggested to increase the value and the marketability of the cattle. Yeah, and because yeah, travel out to properties is time consuming and costly. But who would who would arrange for you to be there? Usually the agent. Okay. Yeah. So whoever was marketing the cattle would say, yeah, we've got such and such to preg test, and you'd go out and do them, and then they would sell them. Okay. Yeah. And so, how long did you stay in the job at Roma for? So I was there for two years, which was a really good grounding in all sorts of mixed practice and it was really um, great fun, great people to work with and, um, yeah, learn a lot. How did you know it was time to leave? Um, I think things just changed. The I Like I'd done two years, I'd learnt an awful lot and I think you just get to a point where you need a change, especially after two years as a new grad. That's what a lot of new grads do. They do a couple of years and move on and the opportunity came up for me to travel overseas and um, go and work in England, which we're really lucky as vets are – degree is reciprocally recognized in the UK so we can go and work over there with not too much expense or fuss and bother and um, you get Aussie vets are really well regarded over there especially mixed practice vets we can generally handle anything so um, it's very easy to get a job over there and it pays for your trip around Europe. (laughs) So what what part of England did you work in? Uh, I worked in mainly my main job was in a little village called Yate which was near Bristol Got no idea where that is. Um, yes, kind of take me from so London, west of London. Okay, yeah, cool. I I didn't like. I've never really been a city vet or a small animal vet, um, so I always wanted to be out of London. And it, this was in it was sole practice of a, um, it was sole charge of a small animal practice. They did five percent horses, and it was. Can you say sole charge? What does that mean? Sorry. So it was a one man practice. So you were running the show. Yeah. So the vet went to Europe for his summer holidays, and I. Just got to run his clinic. Wow. Yeah. And I thought, wow. And when I first met him, he was lovely. And I said to him, oh, my God, why would you employ me? I've been out of uni two years. And he's going, you, you've been in the country in Australia. You'll handle anything. You'll be fine. <laughs> and I was. It was great. It was really wonderful. Did he give you – did you get to work alongside him for a little bit before no, he left? No. Because, like, do they not have different – do the drugs not have different names? In yeah, England? they do. I had a wonderful team. Oh, so you had lots of nurses, nurses and admin and, staff. Yeah, and, so they okay. were really wonderful. And I, my, the first patient that I got to see over there was a hamster. Oh, God. And I didn't know what a hamster was. And I said to the nurse, they said, oh, it's a hamster. I said, what? And they were just looking at each other going, who is this vet they sent us? Like, she doesn't know what a hamster is. Yeah. So it turns out that a hamster is like a rat without a tail. And they're all cute I ha- little pets. I thought they were only American. Hamsters well, no. are like giant, like small guinea pigs, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And thankfully, all he needed you was can't his call nails. A rat. He they're just had needed his nails trimmed, oh, which was to- the Aussie vet could handle that. So yeah, <laughs> everything was okay. Wow. And then, so how long did you yeah. stay in the UK for? So I did. Um, oh, not quite twelve months. I, I like I worked for a while and I travelled for a while and I had a really good friend who was over there who was the same vintage as me out of uni and um, so she was over there as well and um, we'd work for a while and then we'd go travel for a while and see, yeah, see the world. So you worked in Roma, you headed overseas to the UK, you've come back to Australia, worked around a bit, locumed a bit. So And also I didn't even know what the word locum was until maybe two years ago. That's basically like being a relief teacher but for vets, right? Just yeah. relieving. So it's just short-term work. And um, a lot of vets, in particularly in country areas, rely on it just to give them a break while they go on holidays and things. Yeah. So there's yeah there's a lot of locum work around Australia for vets. And then you ended up moving not only back to Canamble but working for the government instead of private practice. 
Tell yeah. me about that. So I never had visions of moving home and I never had visions of being a government vet. In fact, you say that with such like a government vet. (laughs) No, it's the best job in the world. But um, I did prac work. We we were in four. We had to do prac work as a government vet um, through Sydney Uni. And um, it was a little quiet in fifth year uni when I was doing my government vet. It wasn't quite as, um, you know, fast paced as what I was hoping for. But um, taking this job, I've now been in this job eight years and it's the best job ever. So I would say to all those vets out there, don't ever discount it um, and never limit yourself via your training or, you know, what opportunities you take early on in your career because you just never know where you might end up or what you might end up doing. Um, I will probably never go back to private practice. Um, This job is really amazing I really enjoy it so can you explain what your role as a government vet is because I think it's different from state to state in western Australia our vets or at least up here don't do the same job as you so we've got one vet for the entire north and that's more so from a my understanding is from a biosecurity point of view like a lot of disease surveillance and investigations Um, Whereas I know back in the day, though, government vets used to come out and preg test and I don't know, just do all sorts of other things. Anyway, um, so I understand and that's something we've had to talk to producers about is because the role of the government vet has changed. Mm. And I think it is definitely different from state to state. So what does your role actually entail in New South Wales? So New South Wales very um, fortuitously has got a really unique and wonderful government vet system. So it all started... Um, and to give you the short story, in the mid-1800s where um, the colony of New South Wales had all these sheep diseases that were impacting the fledgling colony. And so they groups of producers got together based on police districts and they appointed, they appointed well, they, they weren't even graduating vets in the mid-1800s in Australia, so they appointed stock inspectors to help get rid of these particular sheep diseases and then as time moved on, the board stayed together and the stock inspectors stayed employed and they um, they fought lots of different diseases over time. And so we that's why I, there's been a stock inspector in Canamble since 1898. Wow. That's how old this role is. And as to, over time, as vet schools opened and they started to graduate vets, um, it became a veterinary role. And so our primary role, we, we are ratepayer funded and that's quite unique. So... Back in the 1800s, the boards got together, farmers pooled their money, they all paid a rate and that funded the stock inspector's work to help eradicate the disease. And that has stayed in place over, you know, 150 years or whatever. And so even today that still exists. So we now are a state government, we're a branch of the state government, but farmers pay rates to us um, or to LLS, local land services, and then that funds the district vet. So I think there's maybe 41 district vets around the state. So there's one in each sort of locality. Um, and my main role is disease diagnosis and prevention, but also ratepayer services. And so farmers call up. I only do herd um, health and herd um, and flock diseases. So my role is sheep and cattle based. I do it roughly 50% sheep, 50% cattle. And it's really only if they've got herd problems. So stock dying, stock that won't put on weight, stock that didn't get pregnant, like some sort of herd health things. I don't do individual animals. I don't do preg testing or bull testing or any of those sorts of private vet work. And we work quite closely with our local private vet clinic. Um, they, they toss me work and I toss them work and we sort of work in together. 
which is really lucky. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. So just give us some background on Canamble, um, average herd size, average property size, what kind of country is it, just so we've got a bit of context as to what environment you're working in. Yeah, so it's a mixed farming area. So it's um, average 400 to 450 mil rainfall area. Historically, I think it was classified as a winter rainfall area, but over the last 10 or 20 years, it hasn't followed any vague pattern. It just happens when it happens and we deal with it. And um, particularly over the last eight or 10 years, it hasn't rained at all or virtually at all. We haven't had too many good seasons. We had a wet winter in 2016, but it's been really, really dry and people have been hand feeding now for a long time. And we're traditionally a mixed um, like a mixed farming area. So we have cereal crops, mainly winter crops, wheat and barley and things like that, and sheep and cattle. And there's a Boss Taurus cattle, the yeah. British breeds? Yeah, British bred cattle and um, sheep, both a mix of lamb production and, and wool production. So it's a, it's a fairly ver- – historically it's been a fairly versatile area and we've got quite fertile soils, so it doesn't – and we've got quite – nice weather so it really doesn't matter whether you get rain in summer or rain in winter will grow something um it's quite magical from that point of view when we get rain it's a very nice place to be but um we've just had really um variable seasons lately and it just hasn't rained so it's presented some really um really significant challenges yeah and i want to talk about that and your drought smokers in a little bit but i just want to we're going to stay on the path of the vet work for a minute here one of your stories that you wrote for us is one of the all-time top 10 most read stories on our website. It's got a crazy amount of views on it. I know you know what story I'm talking about. Can you tell me, tell our listeners about it? And if anybody who hasn't, I think it was called When You Hear the Sound of Hoofbeats, if you Google that, yeah, Central Station. Look for horses, not zebras. Yeah, and yeah. Go and have a look, guys, because the photos that Jill put up with it are insane. Like, honestly, when you hear the sound of hoofbeats, Central Station, Google it just to look at the photos, even if you don't want to read a story. Those photos are crazy. Anyway, sorry, continue on. Yeah, so I'd like to think that it's the quality of my blog writing that drew the audience, but I think everybody loves a gory photo. (laughs) It's the photo. And, yeah, it still does my head in. It's wicked. Yeah, so it was about... it was maybe 2012 I think that I saw that case but a farmer called me up and he was from a fair way out west of me so he's a couple hundred k's west of where I live and he basically said he'd had all these dead calves born and that they just his description of it was that they looked like they'd been covered in dam silt and I was thinking I can't usually you can nut out what the problem might be over the phone but what he was describing I thought I've never seen anything like that before that sounds really weird so I got in the car and went for a drive and went out and um, these calves were unlike anything I'd ever seen before. They um, had scales rather than hair. So I... Um, like little fishy calves. Kind of like crocodiles more than yeah. fishy. Like fish, yeah. They, they, like the, hard scales. Really plaques, like really thick, oh, hard so plaques. Yeah, really symmetrical. Um, like you think yeah. baby calf, there's not much you could do to it to make it not be cute. 
those things were not cute yeah remotely so i'd never seen anything like it and luckily i had a cattle textbook in the car with me and i opened it up to um skin diseases and this picture popped up which looks exactly the same and the caption underneath it was fish scale disease not present in australia and i was going oh i I reckon (laughs) that i might have just found i might have found the zebra in amongst the horses um and so there was no mobile reception where I was. So I couldn't ring the lab. And um, so I just took lots and lots of samples and sent them to the lab. And I wrote on the form that I thought that it was this particular disease, which is a genetic disease called ichthyosis fetalis. And um, the lab called me and they said, we don't have that in Australia. And I said, oh, can you just have a look at the samples? Because I'm pretty sure that that's what it is. Anyway, yeah, so it turns out that it's the first case ever recorded in Australia. And I suppose that just um, is another testament to the value of the work that we do and um, the importance of the government vet because I think that farmer was a long way from anywhere and a long way from a private vet and had he, if I hadn't been around to call and to visit and been interested, um, he probably just would have buried those calves and said nothing and it would have remained undiagnosed and undiscovered. And so... uh, um, I think that's the beauty of what we do in terms of disease diagnosis and just being on the lookout for things. Um, So those samples all went to the lab. They're still working on them as PhD students and things like that. They've just called me in the last few weeks and they've actually genotyped and identified the genetic mutation that caused that to occur. And now they're looking for prevalence within, um, you know, cattle within Australia. So it's still ongoing just from that one visit. It's just crazy. And it's so nice to see, not that you'd wish that upon anyone, but often I feel like some people buy security oh they're there and you know like um it's not taken as seriously because we don't have things happen like we haven't had foot and mouth or mad cow disease here and oh it's just all this preparation for you know doomsday that might never come but there are I've just discovered recently it's called the NABS network I want to say it might be Northern Australia Biosecurity Surveillance or something. I don't know, NABS Network mm. or NABS SDI, which I think is Significant Disease Investigation. I don't know if that's what SDI stands for, but in my mind, that's what it should stand for. And they put up all these cases from around Northern Australia on cattle stations of when government vets had to go out. And there's been two cases this year, one on the Barkley where 50 wieners died and the one in Catherine where 15 wieners died from where they needed a vet to come out with biosecurity expertise and investigate what was going on. And I think so often when we talk about biosecurity, the focus is on the big ones like foot and mouth and mad cow, which are very, very important, but to know about these other things. And, um, I know our, our local vet up in the Kimberley has post-mortem kits that he gives out to the cattle stations and puts on trainings. And he's got a video so that, you know, cause you're so remote. If you can't take a set, if you can't get the vet out there, you can at least collect samples and keep them. So they're viable and coming up in a few weeks on the Future Beef website, there's going to be a webinar, which will be on YouTube later, about how to collect samples and the importance mm. of collecting samples in these things. So I suppose you see that firsthand, how important that is, and that it is a, a, maybe a bit more prevalent than what people may think. Oh, the work that goes on behind the scenes is amazing. And um, you might not think that it's occurring, but it really is. As I said, there's 41 district vets across the state all doing what yeah. I do. And um, we filter that every time I go out to a farm, and luckily for us it doesn't, it's never, you know, well, touch wood, it's usually not foot and mouth or it's not, you know, anything particularly nasty. And um, we're, we're actually, as an aside, we're in the middle of the anthrax belt in New South Wales. 
So anthrax is a disease that lives in the soil and causes sudden death in animals. So we're always on the lookout for that and we're always doing surveillance for that. But every time we go out to a farm and it's not that, we filter that information back in and that certifies our freedom from disease and that helps keep our export markets open. So it's so important. So that's the other side of things. It's not about proving disease but it's also about proving absence of disease so that's like there's that brain for bucks program where if cattle meet have neurological symptoms and you can keep their brain after death or post-mortem or whatever it's not necessarily proving that they've got the disease but absence having having enough brains tested to show an absence for our markets which is really important yeah that's right cool any other really cool cases that you've had Oh, I think every time I go out on farm, I find something cool. So, and I mean, that's the benefit of, of, I think we should be investigating, well, every dead animal really, because every time I do a post-mortem or every time I do some testing for ill thrift or reproductive issues, we find something and we make changes that improves the overall functioning of that farm to their economic and animal welfare benefits. So yeah, every time I go out, it's something exciting. How important do you think it is for producers and their staff to take some ownership in this and go and get trained in how to collect samples and have a little post-mortem kit with what's what's the liquid that you put the samples in? Oh, well, formalin is a yeah, fixative. That's on, yeah, yeah. yeah, that stuff and have, you know, a couple of Tupperware containers or with the little screw lids or some Ziploc bags and just a little kit that, mm. you know, if they aren't that close to a vet and you need to get samples while they're still viable – yeah, I think it's good to have some stuff on hand, but it's also really important to have a relationship with either your government vet or your private vet so you can call them and say, oh, look, this is what I found, yeah. you know, and they can either come for a visit or they can guide you in what to collect. And, mm-hmm. like, it's just really important to have that vet-client relationship. So aside from disease investigations, I know, and we'll, we'll touch on this in a second with your drought smokers, but you do also go out and talk to producers so it's not just investigations. You also do a bit of extension work. What sort of stuff do you do? Well, I guess it all stems from my primary role as a disease investigative officer. That's my primary role. But where I live and the fact that it hasn't rained for a few years means that all of the stock are being hand-fed. And luckily it's not, you know, usually when I visit we rule out that it's not a notifiable disease and it's, you know, not a nasty infectious thing that's going to compromise animal health but it's usually mismanagement or poor nutritional management. And so I found that over the years what I was doing was largely nutrition-based. So in 2015, I went back and did some extra training and got my memberships in ruminant nutrition, which has been invaluable because... Sorry, when you say memberships? Yeah, so memberships are kind of um, a step towards specialisation in any field of veterinary science. Cool. Um, Yeah, so it's extra letters behind your name. You've got to sit a big set of exams. You've got to study hard and set a set of exams and you get some extra letters behind your name, basically. This is so good because I'm always looking for a nutritionist to call at work. You're my girl. (laughs) (laughs) You had no idea. You thought you were just going to make yourself sound smart now, but now you've just signed yourself up as a mentor. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway, back to... So it's amazing how closely aligned veterinary science and nutrition are, like the completely interrelated and now that this drought's gone on as long as it has not only has my nutrition knowledge and and help help farmers prioritize and save money and make decisions and do the best thing by their animals it's we're now at the point where we're finding vitamin a deficiency and all these kind of crazy things that hand feeding animals for three years does to to livestock um it's all completely intertwined 
I suppose I go out on farm, the stock are dying or the stock aren't doing well. We work out that's, you know, either via blood testing or sampling or doing postmortems on animals so it's not anything infectious or nasty. And then it comes down to nutrition. So we look at how they're feeding and what they're feeding and we do um, a lot of, we often do feed tests on the products that they're feeding and we do some calculations and work out how they could be doing it better or sometimes it's not even what they're feeding it's how they're feeding like with bullying and separation of animals and management and things like that to try to improve production because when you're feeding for as long as we've been feeding every dollar counts and every megajoule of energy counts when you're giving or sharing this information i know sometimes you're doing it at this event that you've developed called the drought smokers can yeah. you tell us about those so the drought smokers began oh, 18 months to two years ago now um, and they began because the drought started to get really bad and my phone started to run, run hot so our producers are used to filling feed gaps with and we're a cropping area so they're used to feeding out a bit of grain or feeding out you know intermittently for a few months but it went on and it went on and and people started to run out of what they had and they started to we just had a cotton harvest nearby like a few hundred k's away and so they were buying cotton seed that was what initially started it and I was getting like 40 phone calls a day about cotton seed and how to feed it and what to feed it with and how to manage it and I couldn't keep up with the phone calls and so and because I'm often out on farm with no mobile reception so what I said to the farmers was look Tuesday mornings, I'll cook a cake. I'll be, I'll definitely be in the office no matter what between nine and eleven. And you're very welcome to come in and have cake with me. I'll boil a kettle, and you can bring your questions. We'll talk about cotton seed. We'll talk about whatever you want. And um, it just became a thing. So to start with, I was answering the questions and teaching them the basics of ruminant nutrition, and um, helping them do feed budgets and um, and make decisions and and things like that and they became really popular so I was getting phone calls from people saying oh can you do one at my place can you do one at the local hall can you do one at the pub can you do so we we took the show on the road we I ended up doing like 70 of them in six months or something it was full-on we did them everywhere and we helped thousands of producers and um I didn't cook for all of them (laughs) (laughs) should got you to cook while you're here this week uh, I'm actually not a very good cook. Missed opportunity. I've got a Thermomix. Don't know how to use it. Oh, there you go. Drought smoke is in broom. Yeah. <laughs> well, the way our wet season's looking could be. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is, it just blows my mind. Like how many producers in your, you know, there's 41 of you, of your people, of district vets across New South Wales. I keep forgetting like, you know, because up here in the Pilbara and Kimberley, there's about a, not even 150 producers. Mm. Um over a million square kilometres. And so how big is your district that you cover and how many producers do you think you've got there? Or did you go outside your district as yeah. well for this? So my district's a couple of hundred k's across and a couple of hundred k's north to south geographically. I think um, there's about 400 and odd producers in my area, 450 or something like that. So um, I think that's what I'm dealing with. Um, I So I, I run the drought smoker on a Tuesday and I also send a weekly email. And the weekly email is to tell them what I cooked last week and <laughs> what I'm going to cook next week. So I G them up and get them to come in. And um, I tell them about not only the cooking successes but the odd failure that I have where yeah. something didn't rise or it all turned to crap and it didn't taste so good. But anyway, nevertheless, they still turn up even if the cooking's bad. So um 
Yeah, and the email goes to about 650 landholders. So it's kind of spread by reputation. So it started off at a very small group. It was just whoever's contact details I had. And then people just said, can I be involved? Can I, I want my, can you send me that? Like it just grew and now it's 650 landholders. And so the smokers, it just, I don't know. I never know who's going to turn up. So some weeks, I think I've had one where no one turned up. Sometimes it'll be a couple of producers. I think the biggest one we had on a farm was like 70 producers. That's insane. So it just depends. And I had no intentions of them going this long or going this frequently, but the demand was there, so we've just kept it going. And they've been really well received. So you're there. You're giving people technical advice, but you're also bringing together a group of people who are all facing similar circumstances in terms of the climate variability that they're trying to manage with and the ongoing conditions on their farm and the challenges. So immediately, just by walking into that room and sitting down, they can identify they're not alone. There's a bunch of people out there going through the same stuff as them. How important is that? I'm just, and I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. Like it's pretty special. Yeah, it's amazing. So, I mean, Look, to be perfectly honest, when it first started, it was purely my way of reducing workload. I thought if I can address all those questions in one hit once a week, it saves me answering the phone all harder. the time. Mm-hmm. So that was my purpose for, for it initially. Then I realized that their level of understanding of ruminant nutrition and how to feed was it, it was really low. It was okay while they were doing what they always did. But when that ran out, they couldn't adapt. Like they couldn't, they didn't have the knowledge and skills to go, oh, well, I'll feed this. I'll buy that. That's cheap. I'll yeah. make this ration up. I'll fix, you know, they couldn't do that, which is totally understandable. They've never had to. And so I started to teach them the basics. And after about 70 of these smokers, I got really over it. I was really burnt out and sick of it. So we made a YouTube video of it and put it on YouTube. So now they can watch it online. But, and then because I was so burnt out, I had a holiday and then I came back and we just, I just made them very local again. We weren't doing them in wool sheds and mm-hmm. back lawns and country pubs and stuff. We were just doing them in the office. And um, I um, found that, um, that that people were still coming, but they didn't want to they, – they already knew the basics. They just wanted to come and share stories. They just wanted – it became a social thing that you do because a lot of these people are out on farms. They work in isolation they're not necessarily social. They don't play golf. They don't go to the rugby. They don't whatever. They, you know, and it became a really safe space for them to come in, just have a cuppa. So they they would come in and some of them, it just varies. Some I get regular. Some come every week to see what I've cooked. Um, Some come with specific questions and they'll come with a budget that they've done or a feed thing that they've done or a particular problem that they're having. And then others just come because they want to sit there and talk for two hours. And... We're now at the point where I sit back and I don't do very much talking at all. They talk amongst themselves and they share stories and they solve their problems together. That's awesome. That's really cool, Jill. And we have adapted it. So over summer, of course, no one likes to drink coffee and eat cake in summer. So we did beer time. (laughs) So we went to the golf club and the local, we did this in conjunction with um, the local private vet and um, the local gym put on, uh, grumpy grazier's gym session for us so we all went to the gym for an hour and sweated and then we all went and had a beer and talked about ruminant nutrition and feeding after that in the afternoons in summer i love that you brought exercise yeah. into it well just from or a mental health, health yeah. perspective it's exactly. so important 
Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. And so what do you see the future of the drought smoker as being? Well, to be honest, I really didn't envisage they'd go this long and I thought they'd fizzle. Um, and I kind of hope they would have because of all the cooking. But um, <laughs> I don't know how many more scones I've got left in me. But um, I I use them as a vehicle now to get messages across. So there's all there's lots of things, particularly as m- with my job as a vet, that we need to talk about, like you know lead poisoning in stock, and you know mulesing, mulesing and you know whether mulesing is going to continue in sheep, and what what's your plan, you know, and with fly strike resistance and chemical resistance, what do you you know what's your plan? What are you going to do? So I use the forum that we've created to sneak messages in to try to change behaviour on other levels. And so while I did consider like the day it rains and fully rains, we're going to have a massive party and never do this again. I think it's too important of a vehicle for my messages, but it's also too important to the the bonded community that we've now created that they're going to continue. And I think our preparedness for the next drought begins the day it rains that this drought. And there's always better ways we can manage pasture and feed and animals to prepare us for the next one. So I think they're going to keep going. That's my plan. That's just what I was about to ask you because we spoke over dinner tonight about how there's always so much focus on when you're in drought and kind of surviving drought and then a little bit of recovery coming out of drought, but there's really never enough focus when you're not in drought to prepare for the next one because it is going to come. It is a fact of life. It is, if you look at historical rainfall data, historical climate data, it is a cycle. It will come again. So do you think maybe when the drought does break that the drought smokers will continue, but instead of being a in-drought smoker, it's a preparing for drought smoker? Yeah, and I think the rain's going to bring with it its own host of problems. So they say that, you know, you lose more stock when it rains than when it doesn't rain, and I think that's going to be true. The other thing is our stock numbers are so low. People have sold and sold and destocked and destocked. We're at, we're at historically low stock levels within the Canamble district at the moment. Those The stock that are left are so valuable and so precious to those people who have battled through with them. We need to look after them. So I think when it does rain, we're going to have to, look, we're going to, have to really be switched on to keep them going and keep doing well with them. And the other thing is um, uh, the, the rain is going to bring with it, I think, a huge amount of biosecurity issues. So we've imported hay from lots of different states and lots of different places. There's probably lots of weeds in that. And there's going to be a huge rush to restock and people will want to restock with whatever's cheap. So it might not be the necessarily the most safe stock or the most high quality stock. And I think we'll bring in potentially diseases and things. We need to be on the lookout for that and we need to be talking about it. So I think there's always going to be challenges that we need to be on top of. Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end ag industry while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. 
Find out more at cdu.edu.au. All right. So on a slightly different note, we've we've covered a fair bit of Dr. Gillian Kelly. Now, I don't know what the prefix would be, but Miss, oh, I suppose, going by your Facebook and Instagram pages, Miss Vet, who is an artist. Tell me about that. Well, I don't know that I'm an artist. I'm oh, just yes, a girl. I'm a girl who paints <laughs> in her spare paints time. pretty bloody well. So, yeah, when, as I said, I, I studied a few years ago and got my extra qualifications in ruminant nutrition, and that was pretty full on. There was a lot of study involved and a lot of hours. And um, I, when I finished my membership exams and thought, well, that's done, I thought, what am I going to do with all my spare time now? And I was with a friend in Target and we were um, shopping for her nine-year-old daughter's birthday present and she bought her daughter a set of watercolour paints. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll have a go at that. And so I bought a set of watercolours and I started to paint at home and one thing led to another and it seemed that people liked them. And, um, yeah, I've been selling a few and I I keep painting and I love it. It's so wonderful. I bought a little farm a couple of years ago, well, I say farm in inverted commas, but by Central Station's <laughs> standards, it's not a farm. It's not even the horse paddock, mate. It's, it's 100 acres. A homestead complex. <laughs> but I've got a painting room set up and it's just wonderful that I sit and paint and have a great time. Yeah. And so what's your favourite thing to paint? So, And I've got two paintings of yours in my house. Three now. Three, yes, as of tonight, <laughs> third one. So I like painting girls in pretty dresses and cowboy boots with pink lipstick. That's, that's my favourite thing. So why? Like where does that come from? What is that representing? Oh, I have no idea. Is that like if I get really, if we go really abstract here and I get really like psychological, I don't know, whatever, is that just the contrast between the femininity that we all try to maintain while working in such a masculine industry and you're always putting on such a masculine front in your shirt and your jeans and your boots, but deep down we really want to retain that femininity which comes through in the pretty dresses? Yeah, I think you've pretty much nailed it, Steph. You've said what that I That was my say. Google psychology. <laughs> you've done well. That's pretty much Listen it. Listen to a few podcasts. I'm pretty well a psychologist. So. <laughs> you've done well. That's pretty much it. Or you're just saying that. So no, you have to that's, think about that's it. it. Yep. Yep. It's all about retaining that ability and the braveness to wear lipstick and, you know, it's just rocket when, yeah, there's you're in a male-dominated industry. Sometimes I feel it's a bit like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like if you don't dress up and display your femininity you're kind of looked down upon or you know you're you're a tomboy or a blokey bloke but then the girls that do display some femininity in this industry oh well they're not serious about their jobs they're just here for the fun and for the camp drafts and the rodeos and to find a husband and they're just here to you know they're not taking it seriously because they're in the cattle yards wearing a cute bandana and color coordinate their shirt and their earrings and that kind of stuff. How do you juggle? Because you did write a blog for us this year about styling out in the paddock and how to be fashionable. Oh, um, which I don't think I'm necessarily qualified to write about, but anyway, I've given it a lash. Um, oh, I've given up. I've given up worrying about that sort of stuff. I think the judgment speaks more about the person who's doing the judging than the person who's being judged. I think you've got to find what's comfortable for you there'll be some girls who just want to be in jeans and boots and rough stuff and there'll be girls who want to be glammed up and you've just got to find what suits your personality and your true inner heart 
as opposed to what you like the people around you and conforming to anyone else's standards um throughout my career I've you know worried you know am I too girly am I too this am I too that it looked just rocket you know yeah there's days when and it, it comes with time and experience and I've been in my job eight years in the same location virtually now so I'm pretty comfortable with the people I deal with and they all know me and they know the information's quite sound so they're happy to deal with whatever I look like on whatever day it doesn't matter I'm not gonna lie what as we're sitting here and I'm looking at my nails I am I probably do have some low-key anxiety that so I got my first ever set of acrylic nails took me 30 years and I got them about a month ago for my brother's wedding and they were just getting to that yucky point where you had to get them taken off but as I've discovered when you have fake nails because my nails never grow I've never ever had long nails because the minute they get a little bit of length on them they get snapped off or snagged on something but when you have these fake things on them it's like a little protection guard and they're growing underneath as you can see Mm. so today I went back and I got them to leave these tip things on and just kind of redo my nails and now I've got these turquoise jade glittery they're very glittery what do you call them claws they're not that long not compared to other people I've seen but they're long enough Mm. and next week I've got to go down to three stations for events for work and a lot of these pastoralists I actually haven't had the chance to meet yet and I'm a little bit concerned that my first engagement with them is going to be me with these nails but in saying that again like I'm not working in the yards or going out for an event I don't have any cattle work coming up so whatever and if we were doing cattle work I'm sure I could probably still do them all right yeah put some gloves on you if not these will definitely be gone by next year when I've got to do a lot of bleeding so I will not turn up to do that like these but yeah I like that advice about that um, it's more about the person who's doing the judging. And and I guess at the end of the day, you've got to let your actions speak for yourselves. Like say I do, like we do rock up to the yards with nails, as long as I can collect those bloods and do what I need to do. That's exactly that's... right. Um, I, I like buying pretty clothes. I don't yeah. necessarily always get the chance to wear them, but I do like shopping. So um, there'll be days when I think I've got an office day planned, I'll wear a skirt or a pair of high heels or something into the office. And invariably I, it jinxes me every time I get caught out and I get caught out and overalls fix everything. So I just put overalls over the top, go and do my thing and then come back in and and um, take them off. So yeah, you can, you can get away with anything. Yeah. <laughs> now to finish up, I've got a bunch of questions, which I'm borrowing from the Tim Ferriss podcast, Tribe of Mentors. So I've just got a couple okay. <laughs> that we're going to go through. I know. Well, I want to start asking these to everyone. So um, just to – these are really good questions. It's like a leadership podcast um, that he does with people who are very successful, and I'd love to start asking people within our broader pastoral community the same questions and, and start comparing and learning from their answers. So question one, what is the book – or books you've given most as a gift and why? Or what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? I read a lot. Um, I'm a bit of an avid library fan. Uh, I do a lot of reading on my iPad. So I'm a closet Agatha Christie fan. So anything by Agatha Christie gets a bit of a, a run at different times. Not for any reason other than I just really like them. Um, I think Eckhart Tolle's books, any one of them, but particularly A New Earth, is really amazing. If you, I think you've got to be in the right mind frame, but it's really powerful. 
And I suppose um, in the last sort of six months, the book I've gifted to people is um, Boy Swallows Universe. Yes. Now, I do want to ask you about that because that is a book that's on my bookshelf that the wonderful Pip Courtney gave me last year when she crashed at my housemate's house and slept in my bed. And that was the book she was reading. So I'm not going to lie, from the front cover, I haven't opened it yet. because I was like, like, oh, this is a bit (laughs) weird. I don't know if I'm quite into it. Um, Thanks, Pip. But I'll just keep that on the shelf for now. I think she gifted it to you for a reason. (laughs) Yeah. Now, after what you said at dinner tonight, I'm intrigued. Can I just have a little, can we just have a little sneak peek for people? What what is it about and why are you giving it as a gift? Well, it's a good yarn. So it's enthralling from start to finish. It's really great. And second, I think it gives you an insight into some people's lives in Australia and it evokes um, a particular time in a, it's very authentic Australian, suburban, like, yeah, there's a lot of things in there that you can go, oh, I remember that from my childhood. But it's kind of a really gritty um, – he's got a fairly ordinary childhood, but he's overwhelming positivity throughout the book as he's – like it's told from a particular boy's point of view. Um, he's just so overwhelmingly positive through it all. And, he, yeah, it's a really great um, – read and it was written by a journalist and it's partly autobiographical so a lot of the things that happened in it it's like it's yeah there's a lot he's added to it but some of it happened to him and he's had a fairly traumatic childhood so it's quite enlightening in terms of what can happen to some kids and but also how he can remain in you know entirely positive through it all cool that's really cool all righty next question if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it metaphorically speaking of course getting a message out to millions or billions, what would it say and why? Uh, well, I think I'd have to have two, maybe side that? by side or across the road from each other. <laughs> one from a vet point of view and my job and one from Miss Vet or me or Jill. So I think the, the vet one the, the would be sell and repent but always sell. I think people um, in droughts try to hold on to stock. And that's fine if you can afford to feed them and you've done a budget and you, you're prepared mentally to feed stock. But if you're not, you can't just let them lose weight indefinitely because they eventually don't do so well. So you've got to make a decision to sell stock. So sell and repent, but even if it rains tomorrow, always sell. Sell and repent, but always sell. That would be my first one. And then my other one would be... Um, in the midst of winter, she found within herself an eternal summer. What does that mean? So I think it's just like when things get really sad and bad, you know, you can always find positivity within yourself. That you have everything you need within yourself? That's right. All right. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Well, I've already told you about the Agatha Christie thing. Yeah. I really love Magnum P.I., I'm which, a sucker. Which, for, I'm a sucker for a mustache. Now, is that a TV show or a movie? It's a series from the eighty, the seventies or the eighties. Did that have that guy? What was was there a famous actor? Oh, Tom Selleck. Yeah, that's the one who was in that movie. It was a movie like an American movie set in Australia, like on a cattle station around Alice Springs, like way back in the day. Oh, um, Quigley Down Under. That's that dude. Also, Rachel's one of he dated Rachel for a bit on Friends. <laughs> Did he? Oh, yeah. you're in line No, with Monica. Me. No, he dated Monica on Friends. Did he? Not, not in real life, on the show. 
Right. Yeah. Well, there you go. Important reference point. I just, I just know him as Magnum PI. He's a guy with the moustache <laughs> that dated Monica on Friends. Right. How embarrassing. Okay. So uh, Dr. Julian Kelly has a thing for moustaches. Can you cut that video? No. No, we're not cutting that out at all. <laughs> Moving right along, though. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? So I was lucky enough to, through my job, do the Right Minds Rural Leadership Boot Camp, which is a wonderful thing. If you haven't um, heard of that, you should look it up. But, um, yeah, one of the mottos that they sort of run within that program is um, get curious before you get furious. So I suppose... um, we all shoot from the hip a bit and we all um, tend to react spontaneously to things, but just to sort of ask questions and, um, you know, in situations find out the reasoning behind it and, um, yeah, just gather information before you make a decision, I think. Good answer. All right, second last question. When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused or have lost your focus temporarily, what do you do? So I think um, time with my animals is one big thing. So just get home, switch off the phone, switch off social media, spend time with the horses and the dog and all that sort of stuff, bit of time at home. Um, And the other thing I do is paint. So, yeah, a bit of mindfulness, which uh, I'm not good at all that um, mindfulness stuff that they teach you and that they say to do, you know, organically, but I like painting and I like being out with animals and things so that's my thing brilliant and to finish up what is a go-to piece of advice that you would share to anybody just a very generalistic piece of advice um all our avid listeners who are hanging on your every word oh the pressure (laughs) uh i think have a like i think have a go at anything um, I think that if I um, didn't go and sort of tr- really try to get into vet, I probably wouldn't be a vet. I'd probably be a very unhappy, very bad accountant and probably unemployed, check out chicken again or something. So, yeah, have a go at anything. But I think eventually once you've learned a bit, got a bit of experience, done a bit, find, try to find your purpose, you know, try to find what really um, does it for you in life and what where you really want to go and then develop that whatever path that may lead and say no to a lot of stuff like you know if it suits your purpose that's great but if it doesn't say no and just yeah have fun it's very wise words still now you're pretty hesitant about coming on this podcast and didn't think we'd get to 30 minutes how long do you reckon you we've been going for oh i don't know but i've probably bored everybody no no, so by the time we edit this down, we should be just at the hour mark. <gasps> yeah, we're oh at an hour God. and six. So don't worry, we've got a bit to cut out. So thank you. Thanks, you did Steph. it. You did your first podcast. And uh, where can people find you online if they want to see your gorgeous pictures? Uh, well, yeah, if they um, would like to see my pictures, Miss Vet on Instagram and Facebook. Is it just Miss Vet on Instagram or is there any underscores? Oh, it's Miss.Vet. Okay. Yeah, so uh, Miss.Vet on Instagram and just misfit on Facebook. And they can go to centralstation.net.au and go to our host page, click on Dr. Gillian Kelly. And I think you've written seven or eight blogs for us now um, on drought smokers, on that 
go find the pictures of that scaly calf. Like it's so gross, but so good. Then you've got the fashion advice one. You've got one about couch drafting. You've got all sorts of stories. So, And maybe you'll have this southerner back again. Who knows? <laughs> well, now that you've been in the Kimberley, we'll temporarily or honor, honor, you'll be an honorable Kimberley area. <laughs> visitor. You, yeah. A welcome what, visitor. What do we call you? A Kim, Kimberley? Kimberlite. Kimble, yeah. Well, you're honorary now, so thanks for having me, Steph. Thanks. There are currently over 1,100 compelling true stories on centralstation.net.au, which will open your eyes to what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. There are yarns from station managers, ringers, cooks, govies, pilots, vets, and more, told with humour, self-deprecation, and pride in a job well done. There are tales of working in stock camps, mustering cattle, and how education and socialisation works in some of the most remote parts of Australia. There's stories about the wonder of living in an amazing landscape, but also the perils that come with flood, fire and drought. And there's stories about the inherent danger of living in isolation, including times when the flying doctor has come to the rescue. These stories paint a vivid picture of outback life, the good, the bad and the dusty.